on Amazon with immediate, oh my God, I've got to have that cooler. I've got to have that whatever it is. Some gizmoch, cool trinket, whatever. It's like whoosh. I used to spend just to make myself feel better. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that, please? When it comes to shopping, it just it makes it like candy for me. Sure, it's right? easy. Because now it's fun and it's easy. What got me in trouble was the impulsive spending. 10, 10, 10 really is all about just pausing for 10 minutes. I thought I had to hold my breath. No, you don't have to hold your breath for 10 minutes. You just have to pause. Okay. Because if you held your breath for 10 minutes, I'd be scared. I'd be blue. Yes. Welcome to Your Financial Sobriety, a podcast that challenges conventional beliefs about money and life. We're here to talk about the only three relationships in life that really matter, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with other people, and our relationship with money. And they are all tied very closely to one another. If you've ever struggled with any of these relationships at any point in your life, then you're in the right place. I'm Matthew Grishman, co-owner of Gebhardt Group. We're a private wealth management firm headquartered just outside San Francisco, California. I'm joined by my business partner and BFF, Jim Gebhardt, who got this party started when he opened the doors of our firm in 2005. Jim and I created Your Financial Sobriety because we want to help a lot of people. We're on a mission to become the most disruptive money influencers of our time. If after listening today, you're able to take one step closer to keeping your money more aligned with the people, places, and experiences that mean the most to you, then Jim and I just got one step closer to accomplishing our mission. So what are we going to do today, partner? Today's all about the blueprint. We should have our like architectural glasses and our mechanical pencils and... Yeah, I'm putting mine on right now. All the cool things that architects use. And uh, my dear brother-in-law, who I hope is listening, Randall, is a professor of architecture. So he's helped me a little bit with this concept of a blueprint. Well, this, this is the cool part. This is where we actually start building stuff for people. We get people. to design it. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we've already gone through the inventory... Right, we've we've had the entire bag of crap analysis where somebody came in and dumped all their stuff out on the desk, and right. we looked at where they're at. Then we got to that top of the mountain vision conversation where we got to use the clarity compass to help flush out these four key principles that drove all our decisions in life. And so now, now what? Now, well, now we're at the point where we got to start designing this thing, right? Start putting the plan together of how our money is going to be aligned with the things that are most important to us. So where do we start with that? The blueprint module. The blueprint is all about the three things you can control. That's where it starts, right? Yeah. We've got to, well, we have to recognize what we can control and what we have no control over when it comes to our money. Yeah. I kind of got that backwards. (laughs) It's all right. I understood what you were saying. It happens. I understood what you were saying. So Jim, talk to me about the three things that we have control over. In other words, when we're about to go into building a blueprint. Mm Mm-hmm. We have to account for a lot of things that are outside of our control. Sure. Like the way stock markets go up and down. Sure. Or the way the Federal Reserve Bank sets interest rates. Yeah. Inflation, right? That's another thing we have absolutely no control over. Yeah. The biggest one to me, there's really, there's there's three. Three but things I, we do control. Three things we do control. The big one being the risk that we're going to take with the money. What level of risk are we comfortable with in terms of however the money is going to be invested? Whether it's a stock market, whether it's real estate, whether it's coins and pork bellies, it doesn't matter to us, but it definitely matters to the client in terms of the risk 
that they're comfortable with in terms of the volatility and the ups and the downs. Yeah, I mean, that is something we have control over is how much risk we take with our money. We don't necessarily have any control over what kind of returns we might get from the risk year that we in take. Year in and year out, absolutely. Right, but we do have some control over the risk. What else do we have control over? Taxes. Tell me more about that. Well, what tax bracket are we in today? What tax bracket do we think we'll be in next year? When we when we sell an investment, we have control over the timing of that, hopefully, relative to capital gains taxes. Granted, the landscape of taxes changes, it feels like, every year. And, I mean, they just slipped in one at the end of last year called the SECURE Act. That has some impact on taxes if you're if you have IRAs and you're approaching 70. That's now all been changed. We'll save that for a little bit later. Taxes are something that you have a little bit of control over from the standpoint of spending your money and making transactions that would be liquidating something to sell it. Well, yeah, we have. I mean, we have control over the taxes from a standpoint of the types of investments that we could choose to buy. Certain types of investments pay dividends. Those dividends create taxable events. Sure. So we would have some control over whether or not we bought something like, for example, a dividend-paying stock. Sure. We also have control over the frequency with which we're buying and selling different types of investments. Because if we buy an investment today and it's worth more money when we sell it one day, we're going to have some tax liability for that Capital growth. Capital gains, right? folks. Yeah. Capital so, gains tax. So there's taxes associated with when we buy and sell different types of investments, and there's also taxes associated with the types of investments we own when it relates to things like dividend payments and things like that. So the third one is one of my favorites that you love talking about on the spending side. And let's face it, you're the king of the spending in in days of yore. Absolutely. I think somebody told me I invented the concept of spending. Oh, way to go, Mr. Jones. (laughs) I mean, that is the third thing that we control is we control. I mean, we, we said this a couple episodes ago, right? The goes ins and goes outs. We have absolute control over the goes-outs, how much we spend. Almost exclusive control. Saturday, I was thinking of you. My wife texted me. I was with the boys running errands. Hey, guess what? Dryer died. Oh, no. Dryer died. Seriously? We you're, just had the conversation on Friday about all the appliances in your house. Right, and you're telling me this on our podcast episode. Well, I, you know, I like to save a little <laughs> something for the fun. And sure enough, I come home, and the repair guy's there, and he's got completely dissected the dryer. And Beth's already online looking at the Sears outlet and whatever else she can find online that might be a replacement to what we have. I said, just hang on. Hang on. We might be able to actually come out okay with a repair here. And for $328, bucks, uh, we are pretty much going to have a new dryer on Tuesday. Oh, wow. So meaning, the your dryer's side, getting, meaning your dryer is getting fixed or you're getting a new dryer? Our dryer is getting fixed. Beth went up to the commercial laundromat up the hill from us and did about 10 loads. So we got her done. I've got all clean clothes on today. So that's a, that's a spend that we didn't really have any control over, right? We had to go fix the dryer. Sure. I but, mean, but the spending principle that you've taught many uh, a client and uh, even some of our friends in social media, your 10-10-10 principle. Oh, absolutely. When it, you know, When it comes to us making a decision to spend, I mean, I know for me what got me in so much trouble was the impulsive spending. I used to spend just to make myself feel better. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that, please? What got me in trouble was the impulsive spending. Mm -hmm. The fact that I would spend money to make myself feel better. Right. So retail therapy, in today's today's vernacular, today's vernacular, Amazon Prime, love Amazon shareholder, but Amazon Prime is 
brutal from the standpoint of immediate gratification. Click the button. I've got it in two days. Well, and they've gamified the whole process. So they've made it fun to shop. So not only have they created something that the end user is going to want to use more often, but for someone like me who has a spending problem when it comes to shopping, it just it makes it like candy for me. Sure, it's right? easy. Because now it's fun and it's easy. So I had to build a discipline muscle around the spending part, right? If this is if there are only three things about building this blueprint that I have any control over and one of them is my spending, or at least I have control over the majority of my spending when it comes to especially the impulse purchases, I've started to apply something called the 10-10-10 principle. So whenever 10% I- down, 10% <laughs> later, 10% interest? Sure. Okay. Yeah, it's like the old layaway plan that we used to have in Kmart when we right. were kids. Right. No, what 10-10-10 right now really is all about is that first 10 is about just pausing for 10 minutes. I thought I had to hold my breath. No, you don't have to hold your breath for 10 minutes. You just have to pause. Okay. Because if you held your breath for 10 minutes, I'd be scared. I'd be blue. Yes. No, it's just a pause. So if I'm out and about and I come to this compulsive moment of I got to have that, mm-hmm. 10, 10, 10. Wait a minute. Let me just put it down for 10 minutes. Drop and give me 10. Walk away for 10 minutes. Do your 10 push-ups. I mean, if you were with me, I'd probably have to do 10 push-ups. But I'm just going to walk away for 10 minutes. Okay. And then I'm going to come back to that item and think about what does that item mean to me in my life 10 weeks from now, 10 months from now, and 10 years from now? Now, if 10 years from now- Okay, hang on. Pause. Okay. We got to let everybody catch up on that. 10, blah, 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 blah. So I put the item down for 10 minutes. I put it down for 10 minutes. I come back to it. 10 weeks. How do I feel about this purchase Yeah. in 10 weeks, Yeah. in 10 months, and in 10 years? Wow. Now, what wow. do you think I would say if 10 years from now, this purchase could be meaningful in my life? Uh, that's a no-brainer, Bob. That is a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. Buy it. Right. Right? So the repair that you had to put into your dryer or replacing your dryer- I didn't that, have 10 minutes for that. <laughs> you didn't have 10 <laughs> minutes to make- Well, if you didn't have 10 minutes to make the decision, could you at least apply the 10 weeks, 10 months, 10-year principle to it? I could have. Sure. Absolutely. So is there some hope at least that that three- What did you spend? 323 bucks, you said? Yes. So does the 323 bucks potentially fix this thing for the next 10 years? Potentially. Next, next 10 years, potentially. Okay. Yeah, we also figured out we'd done about 7,000 loads of laundry <laughs> since we bought them. Never put a nickel in them in terms of the repair. And let's band-aid it and see if we can get her to uh, do another two, three, four, five thousand 5,000 loads. So, yeah, I get your point. Yeah, if, it, if it's a 10-year decision, it's a no-brainer. I, what's, a good, what's a good example of that? Great example, my Apple Watch. You and I have talked a lot about the Apple Watch. As much as I am enjoying my journey of financial sobriety, I relapse. I relapse often, it feels like. Sure. I mean, that's just, I guess, part of being human. I had to have an Apple Watch. And I didn't have to have it when I left my house that day. I had to have it in that moment that I was standing in the Apple store waiting for a repair on my iPhone. I saw the Apple Watch. I made an impulsive decision that I I needed that. I got to have it now. And I bought it. Because you could. Because I could. Ask me where that Apple Watch is right now. Uh, yeah, it's, well, I, I'm looking at your left wrist and it's not there. Right. So where, where would it be? It's sitting at home on my night table. Oh, right. Where, where it's been since the third day I owned it. Because you have it was to- too heavy? You have to charge it. Oh, you have to charge it. Right. And that just- I, I don't got, have, I don't have one. So I got I lost on that. Yeah. I got lost in charging it. It's just too cumbersome for me. Too clunky to have to do that. So it's literally been sitting there. What was that, three years ago? Kids haven't tried to uh, run off with it? Both my kids have tried to run off with it at some point. Got it. 
Yeah. But they got an electric shock thing with it that there's an app for that. <laughs> exactly. The built-in electric shock uh, to keep okay, your kids Stanley, out of your what, stuff. What is a 10-year no-brainer? Boy, a 10-year no-brainer to me would be something that would create a memory for me with my family. Perhaps a trip that I would take with my family. Can I say, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to say it the correct uh, Matthew Grishman way, a travel trailer. A travel trailer. Uh, no, yeah. no, no, no. A travel trailer. A tra- Oh, okay. You're trying to get my exact enunciation. Yeah, I'm not. A travel I'm not, trailer. I'm going to have to work on it. Yeah, a travel trailer. So there that is a great example of a, you would enjoy it in 10 weeks, you would enjoy it in 10 months, and the it experiences, well, not just the travel trailer itself, but the experiences that come with owning and using a travel trailer. Sure. We call those RVs where I grew up. <laughs> is a no-brainer. My wife had the greatest idea. I love this story. Because we were, you know, we we're going to celebrate our 20th anniversary. We we're thinking about what to do for our 20th anniversary. I've been to Italy. She's been to Italy. We've never been to Italy together. We thought it'd be a great idea to go to Italy together for our 20th anniversary. You know, I speak Italian. You do? Mm-hmm. I thought you only know how to say one thing in Italian. I do. What is that? Sono affamato. Oh, meaning I'm starving. To our dear, dear friend, John Panette, God rest his soul. Yes, yes. In fact, I heard you could say that in 27 languages. And if this was a visual podcast, you'd be able to see that too. <laughs> Back anyway to the she adventures a, in Italy. She had a great idea. So I, I started going online and looking into what it would cost us to go to Italy for 10 days. Yeah. And it was a lot of money. From this side of the country, it's, uh, it was it's a, a couple- It was a $15,000 ticket. For how us many, how to many go people? To, for two of us. Two people. To go for 10 days and- See the kinds of things we want to see and eat the way we want to eat and fly the way we'd want to fly. Sono affamato. Exactly. <laughs> Gesundheit. <laughs> My wife came to me with this incredible suggestion. She said, I've got a better idea. What's that, honey? We've always talked about buying a travel trailer. You said it right that time. I did. Okay. She'd be proud. So for $8,000, we bought a travel trailer. Did you buy two of them? Because the trip to Hawaii was fifteen grand. For half the price of what we would have spent going to Italy, because when we really thought about our core principles, right, we we went back to our clarity compass. Here we go. And we thought about what are the things that we really want to get out of this trip together. And it was about time together, quality time together without distraction. Well, I can't think of a more distracting experience than going sightseeing in Italy with my wife. Yes, sure. I'm sure there'd be lots of romantic stuff and and time that we would have together. At churches and museums? (laughs) Exactly. But let me tell you, this was fantastic. We took a trailer. We towed it to the coast. We found a campground on the beach for 54 bucks a day in a little town called Westport, California. And you literally walk out your trailer, your feet are in the sand, and the waves are breaking less than 50 yards from the front door of my trailer. I think you should post some of those pictures on our Facebook page. Maybe I will. Because uh, they are just sensational. You would have no clue. Now... Let's close the loop here. You did take the photos on an iPhone. I did. So imagine the pictures you could have taken from your iWatch. <laughs> exactly. It just so that that it was is meaningful. A, that, oh, it's totally meaningful. It was very. And you meaningful. guys have had a number of incredible adventures. You've told me so many amazing tales of places that you've been, people you've met. I've seen most of the photographs. You've actually taken some, put them on canvas, spread them around the office. They're, they're sensational. There's a lot of value to this exercise of 10-10-10. Yes. That's a great 10-year example. Yes. Let's back it up into like 10 months and so that so that people can understand 
how do I, you know, where do I grade this thing? Well, where to me it's become a black and white decision where it's either a yes or a no is on the ends of it, right? The 10 weeks or the 10 years. So if I'm looking at a purchase, let's say it's the travel trailer or it's the Apple Watch or my newfound fascination with these shoes called Allbirds, right? I love my Allbirds. All right, I wanna, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Sorry. Okay. So I want a new set of golf clubs. Okay. And the golf clubs I want are a lot. They're like 2500 bucks. I have no business spending 2500 bucks on a set of golf clubs. And I can give you all the reasons. I just turned 50. Sure, that's a good reason. 10 years from now, I'd be enjoying them. 10 months from now, I'd be enjoying them. 10 weeks from now, I'd be enjoying them. But if I can't afford it, that's where I, I think a lot of people can get the 10, 10, 10. Where I want to pick this apart a little bit is I can't afford, I can, but it's not an appropriate use of, of, the, of my money right now for 2500 bucks for a set of golf clubs yeah, when, I have, when I have two perfectly good sets in my garage. Yeah. Then I would say then that's, that's an overriding kill the conversation. Right. If it's not a good purchase, what I use the 10, 10, 10 for yeah. is when this is a purchase that I could make no problem. Okay. So you can afford the transaction. Yeah, I can afford this transaction. What I'm trying to do is change my behavior and have healthier behavior when it comes to impulsive purchases. Right. Because impulsive purchases kill you in quantity, not quality. The number one thing that will ruin my blueprint, right? If this is all about looking at the three things that I have control over, and one of those things that I have control over is the way I spend my money. That goes outs. That goes outs. Then the number one thing that's going to hurt that or, or put that in jeopardy is this idea of impulsive spending. Buying something just for the sake of buying something either because I'm bored, because I'm angry, because I'm sad, because I have some kind of emotional thing going uh -oh. on that I'm going to feel better about you, myself after I make this purchase. You just said the E word, emotion. Uh-oh. I just opened the door up to something, I yeah, guess. Yeah, huh? we need like... A team of therapists in here now. Well, that in the, down the road, I, I sense a couple of uh, podcast episodes dealing with that. You mean to tell me that people spend money emotionally? Yes. I know I do. I mean, I can't speak to people, but I can speak to my own behaviors, and I can speak to the behaviors of those who have heard me tell my story and have felt the same in their own story. Oh, come on. I've never done anything like that before. <laughs> Jeez. I mean... You're not like on your island all by yourself, Wilson. <laughs> this this concept of, I mean, the 10-10-10 the is all about putting some kind of break mechanism yes. in the emotional transaction, whether it's recognizable or unrecognizable, right? We, people do it un unconsciously all the time. I know I've spent a couple of bucks on, on Amazon with a media. Oh, my God, I've got to have that cooler. I've got to have that whatever it is, some gizmoch cool trinket, whatever. It's like whoosh. And I can have it in less than 48 hours. Right. This is a, a wonderful- It's a tool. Pause. Yeah. It's a tool to help people pause. Tool in the, in the tool bag. Yeah, absolutely. Because that first 10 minutes, right? If I can just, if I can program myself to remember the number 10 when I'm in the process of an impulsive purchase, that then I can at least create the space to pause. And psychologically, what that does for me is when I put that thing down and I walk away from it, that pause gives my emotions time to leave, right? Emotions are temporary. They come and they go. They never stay forever. Whether you're sad, whether you're angry, whether you're happy, completely joyful. These are all emotions that are very temporary in nature. So by having a 10-10-10 principle, which first teaches me to pause for 10 minutes, that gives me, my experience has been ample time to flush out 
any emotional baggage that might be around that purchase. Yeah, because you'll know, have another 2, 8, 10, 12 emotions in the next 10 minutes anyway. Right. But at least now I can look at it with more of that 10, 10, 10 filter of how would I actually feel about this 10 weeks from now, 10 months from now, 10 years from now. And if 10 years from now this purchase would bring great value or joy into my life, then I think it's a no-brainer. If it won't survive 10 weeks, put it back. You don't need it. Where it gets a little gray is the 10 months, right? Because we could very easily justify purchases that are still meaningful to us 10 months from now. But at least that 10-minute pause allows the emotion from the purchase to flush out. That's the number one killer of the blueprint, right? When clients come in and see us, when we work with somebody on their wealth formation experience, we require that they come see us at least once a year so we can kind of have a little checkup on the plan. How do we do, right? When we look at the three things we have control over, the amount of risk we take, the amount of tax we pay, and the amount of goes-outs money, right, the amount we spend, we want to be able to look at the plan. Are we still heading in the right direction based on these three controllables? And course correct. And course correct if necessary. Absolutely. But Time and time again, you and I have both had the experience in the trenches to know that the number one thing of those three controllables that can throw a plan off is the impulsive spending. Sure. I mean, that's, that's a decision from a 10-10-10 perspective. What is it that we're truly trying to get from that experience? Right. All right. So the, the blueprint conversation is as much about looking at the things that we can control yes. as it is getting some yes answers. What do you mean by that? Well, our, our very favorite question to ask or to, to have clients be able to answer. Oh, now I know where you're going with this. Is what? Can I fill in the blank? Fill in the blank. Right. Can I retire at a certain age with a certain amount of income coming to me for the rest of my life, being able to do, see, and explore these places with Educate these, people? these people? Right. Right. Can I trip with these people? All that good stuff. Right. And the beginning of the blueprint process is about answering that question, can I fill in the blank? And we don't leave the blueprint module until the answer is yes. And as we've always said with financial planning, it's a series of pulleys and levers. Right. Right. So you're backstage at a conference and you're looking at how they're moving the sets or whatever the theatrical performance is, and it's all pulleys and levers that make adjustments to what you're seeing. That's financial planning. Not really much more complicated than that is you have to make certain adjustments, or in our pilot analogy with course correcting, right, is you got to take the bird off of of autopilot and you got to hand fly it. And the way you hand fly it is you have to make certain adjustments. So if we look at an annual review with a client and they have spent, they've had too many goes outs, they've had too many, whether they be impulse purchases or just unplanned big tickets, we got to course correct, see where they're at, and be able to answer that question. Yes, you can fill in the blank. Right. But we have to go back to those three things that we have control no over doubt. and see where we need to adjust those pulleys and levers and make some changes. So once we get that foundation in place and we've built a plan that has lots of buffers or what do you, you, you describe this well? Um, well, Uncle Warren, right? I mean, Uncle Warren Buffett has a phrase that I've, I've borrowed called margins of safety. That's it. Mar- that's what I was looking for, margins of safety. When he does a deal, when he looks at buying a business, he does his calculations, his people do the calculations, and they look for a margin of safety. They look for a margin of safety in the transaction, and it's my understanding they also look for a little bit of margin of safety in the un- underlying business. So put that in terms of a financial planning experience. What do you mean by margin of safety sure. when we're building a financial plan? One of the, one of the big ones with most clients is their home. 
They live, we like to say, they live in the home, not on the home. Right. What do you mean by that? In Northern California, houses, they go for a lot. Money, money. It's just crazy how much houses go for here. If the homeowner has had the house a long time, there's a tremendous amount of equity that's built up in the property that we see as a margin of safety. So in our analysis and our calculations and our math, if we take out the house, if we from, say- From like a net worth statement. From a net worth statement and from a retirement cash flow and trying to answer that question, yes, I can, we don't include the house. Take the financial value of the house out of the equation. Because we goes. live in it, we don't live on it. Out it goes. Okay. If, in fact, it's worth a lot, 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 we might include a little bit of it. Give me another example. Another example is- how we manage the money and being a little bit more conservative with the calculations and the analysis to be able to say, if we don't, you know, we use random returns, first of all. And what does that mean? I was, again, classically trained at a big, large financial brokerage, Wall Street firm. When we did financial planning, it was linear. You got the same rate of return every year on your portfolio. Well, let's face it, folks, that doesn't happen. That's not how the world works. When you use random returns, you get completely different results, right? If you were retiring in 2006 and the market did its thing in 2008 and 9, whew, that's brutal. Versus if you retired 10 years later, those, that sequence of all those returns, those are things that we do with the financial planning software that we use to build in some margin of safety or a bit of a buffer. So what, I mean, what you're really saying there is, is since... The return on our money, what we earn on our investments, is not something we control. We need to build a margin of safety around that by assuming very low rates of return on our money. Absolutely. So what are we talking about? 3%, 4%? In more like the 4% range. Okay. So we're making assumptions when what's been the long-term average return of the stock market? Eight and change. Okay. Probably pushing higher. Yeah. Fact checkers will pick us apart on that, but it's it's north of eight. Yeah. So, but if we use, if again, if we use rose-colored glasses to view everything, we're just inviting, you know, we're inviting scenarios into the future that we don't want. Well, that that's my point. That's why I'm saying that is that if stock markets over long periods of time have averaged, let's call it eight to ten percent, to make all the fact checkers uh, happy. If stock markets have averaged eight to ten percent a year over, let's call it the last hundred years, we're going to build a margin of safety into our blueprint. That's more like 3 or 4% because we have very little control over those we returns. We have very little control. So another example, age, right? What's life expectancy these days for men and women? Depends on the week. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the geopolitical events that are going on. No kidding. Uh, it's in the 80s, eight, low, low to mid 80s. But yet when we do our planning work- We push it way out into the 90s. Yeah. I mean, 95 for women, 93 or 94 for men- one of my favorite things when clients come in and we start to have that conversation, you know, we, you know, Mr. And Mrs. Smith here, we're running out the uh, the ages on life expectancy way out into your, oh, we are not going to live. No way we're going to live that long. Into our mid-90s. Right. Oh, tell me about your, uh, tell me about your parents. Oh, you won't believe my mother. My mother lives independently. She still mows her own lawn. She goes to bingo three days a week. She and just she's got 116 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all, you know, she smoked, she ate lard for 40 years. It To me, it, <laughs> what is often forgotten is the advancements in science and technology. And the last thing that we want to see happen is we get out into our mid to late 90s and we're out of dough. Right, right. I mean, that's a huge margin that's of safety, right? That's a huge right? margin of safety. I mean, if and we frankly, assume- we should just we should just leave it at 100, 100 years old and forget it. Absolutely. 
because there's this term they use in our business called longevity risk. It's a fancy term. It's way too big. Uh, what was that? Uh-huh. It's called longevity risk. You know what that basically is means? Is that a ski resort? It is. Oh. Right up here in Tahoe, actually. What longevity risk means is that if we make an assumption that you're going to live to your life expectancy of 81 and you actually live to the age of 82. Rut-row. That's longevity risk. Rut-row, raggy. Right. On the other side of it is if we plan for your money to last to your age 95 and you live to 91, success. Right? right, We've got to make the money outlast the life. I have a number of clients that have come to me over the years, and I will put up that screen with life expectancy at 90-whatever, and, and perhaps they've had a very serious life-threatening illness. Mm. And they're like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to make it to 93. There's no, there's no way. I'm 68 today. I'm a survivor of fill-in-the-blank, awful disease. I'm not going to make it. Okay, Cool. You don't think you're going to make it, but I can't in good conscience put something other than a very, very long ripe, I can't imagine living to this age because I can introduce you to lots of clients who are as healthy as a horse and they are much the same way. They don't think they're going to make it that long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just what it boils down to is this idea of realizing that there are three things we have control over, how much risk we take, the amount of tax we pay and the spending that we have, then we have to build these margins of safety into the plan to account for all of the uncontrollable variables, like how much my money's going to grow each year, how much inflation's going to be out there, how long I'm going to live, right? And we build all these margins of safety into the blueprint. Right. And then that ultimately gets us to a point where we can model some different scenarios about what tomorrow might look like. But there's a key ingredient here that We'd be remiss if we don't go through a little bit, and it has to do with with building some rules around how these dollars are going to be used going forward. And and you know, you and I have spent a lot of time, a lot of our time, kind of studying how the wealthiest families that have ever lived have dealt with all of these different issues, especially when it comes to this blueprint module, right? How do we structure the family assets to support the things that are most meaningful to us? And one of the things that you and I have found is that there is a common theme amongst the wealthiest families that have ever lived on planet Earth as far as how they treat the money within their family. They, it's almost like they come up with rules. So the disclaimer here before we get started is this isn't for everybody. Right. The, these rules aren't for everybody. These concepts aren't for everybody. But we share because that's what we do. We like to learn stuff, and then we like to share it. Let me add to the disclaimer, and I know why you're saying this isn't for everybody because the the family example we're about to use happens to be one of the wealthiest families that ever lived. What I would argue is that any family that is interested in creating a legacy that goes beyond them, I don't care if you leave 10 grand behind for your kids. I don't care how much you leave behind. If you are interested in building a legacy that lasts beyond you and your children's generation, and you can pass on with any amount of money a set of rules, a set of beliefs, a set of values that that go with the money, then you have that ability to create the kind of legacy that some of the most successful families in history have created. Just to be uh, a little bit more dramatic <laughs> and play with this a little bit longer before we actually tell the story, what does traditional estate planning look like today? What, I mean... Lots of lawyers. So Beth and I go down in a tragic plane crash, and traditionally what... What happens to 
anybody's money. Well, that, a bunch of lawyers get away. together and a bunch of big a big bag of money hits the middle of the table and your four children each get their cut and scatter like cockroaches so they and go would, live their life. They would get 25% a piece yeah. in a very traditional setup and the money goes to them directly. Right. And maybe we've got a couple rules around what ages they get it if they're minors or young adults. Sure. Or, but other than that, it just goes to them outright. Right. All right. So that's kind of the build up to our favorite story that uh, my dear friend and and one of my favorite coaches of all time, Lee Brower, shared with me a number of years ago that's in his book, Quadrant Living, is uh, Baron von Rothschild. And if you're not familiar with the Rothschilds, Baron von Rothschild back in the 1800s was one of the wealthiest men in the world. Well, and I love how he tells the story comparing the Rothschilds to the other wealthiest family in the United States. In the United States. The Vanderbilts. Named, right, the Vanderbilts. the Vanderbilts. Cornelius Vanderbilt being a railroad magnate and Rothschild being a banking and uh, finance magnate back in back the in 1800s. The day. <laughs> Baron von Rothschild has five sons, and he says that you are to uh, each go to a different capital in Europe. The way the money is going to come to you is under a set of four principles that he laid out and then we kind of like we kind of made up our fifth right we made up our own for number five right the first thing is that uh the money is going to stay in the family so money is not the money is not going to go to the the five sons individually it's more of a what we refer to as a family bank concept so the money stays within the name of the family not to any one individual not to any one individual so that is principle number one or rule number one and you one. have to be in the family to be able to access the money bingo number two is that the anything that, any money that you're going to take is going to be a loan that loan is going to be repaid with interest let's say you wanted to start a business and you were in Venice and you wanted to start a a floral shop. A floral shop in Venice. You can borrow money from the family bank, but that money has to be paid back with, with interest. Okay. That makes sense. Principle number three is it has to be, and this is a little bit interpretation from you and me, but it has to be something that's going to have impact, not creating more comfort in your life. So I can't just take money out and go buy myself a nice new apartment in London. And- Number four is you've got to come back. So there's going to be a family meeting every year. This is a way to help keep the family together is you're going to have a family meeting every year and it doesn't need to be exotic, but you have to come and report back on what the experience has been like of owning, operating, and running a floral shop in Venice. That what's, is critically- What's the benefit of doing yeah, that? Yeah, that's critically important because who knows if some future generation of the family may have the same idea. Now they can look back and reference- what were the challenges? What were the struggles? What were the benefits? What were the opportunities of that floral shop in Venice? So Baron von Rothschild puts these rules in place while he's still alive with his children living in the different capitals in Europe. Four rules. You got to be a Rothschild. Rule number one. Rule number two is anything you take is a loan, not a gift. Rule number three is any money you take has to be used to have impact in the world, not just to make yourself more comfortable. And rule number four is you got to come back to the family meeting and tell us what you learned. Love it. Nailed so, it. Com- center, center field fence, home run. Thank you. So compare that then to the experience of the Vanderbilt fortune. The Vanderbilt fortune was in similar size and scope in terms of, at the time, what the families were worth. And I don't exactly remember how many kids Cornelius had, but it was, it was a lot. It was 8, 10, 12. It was a big number. And it was just, it, it was, was divisible. Prolific reproducer. Sure. <laughs> it was divisible. 
So whatever his number was, it was divided by, it went to the kids outright, and then uh, and then they scattered like cockroaches. What is so interesting to me is in the seventies, it was the first time the family had ever reunited. What's that like? A hundred years later. A hundred years later, at the centennial anniversary of Vanderbilt University, one hundred members of the Cornelius Vanderbilt descendants descendants of were at this event. Not a single millionaire among them. Wow. Wow. I'm slowing it down and pausing for dramatic effect because that is staggering to me, that you could have the kind of wealth that the Vanderbilts had back in the day, and you can go see their mansions in different parts of the United States and how they lived, and to think 100 years later there's not a millionaire among them, staggering. Well, one of the things that you and I learned that's obviously a key difference between the Rothschilds and the Vanderbilts is that... We could spend the next six months helping a client prepare the estate for their children. But if we don't spend an equal amount of time preparing the children for the estate... Come on, who does it go to? The money's either going to the local Best Buy or the local Mercedes-Benz dealership. And we love both of those companies. We love both of those companies, but that's who becomes the biggest beneficiary of the estate. Not the community, not the family. Stuff Mart. Exactly. Stuff Mart. Stuff. Exactly. Oh, I just I think that's such a powerful story. And I think any family, I don't care if you've got a hundred billion dollars or a hundred dollars, you could spend the next six months preparing whatever you've saved to go to your children. But if you don't spend an equal amount of time preparing your children for what you've saved, the money's not gonna last very long. We would really love to hear what you guys think about this. Yeah. So if you want to email us at info at your you can go on our Facebook page, our LinkedIn page. We'd love to hear about it. These concepts are things that we want to understand what you're thinking and how you're feeling about it. So don't hesitate to uh, reach out to us. Hey, knucklehead, guess what you forgot? What did I forgot? Our fifth rule. Oh, the fifth rule. <laughs> right? Our fun fifth made-up rule. Right, the one we made up that we assume Baron Von Rothschild Shh. had in place. Shh. What's Shh. the fifth rule? I just did it. Shh. It's under wraps. Ah. we Don't, don't flaunt it. Don't talk about the family money. Don't talk money. about the family money. Don't mean, flaunt so I, the family money. I can't go Google Rothschild fortune and find out every little tidbit like a People magazine You can try. Issue. You can try. Thank you for reminding me. I got all, all excited and flustered on the other stuff. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's a big one is you won't see much about their wealth today. And no, it it's is, the largest private foundation in the world, and we have no idea what it's worth because of these rules that they followed. It's incredible. And God bless Cornelius with his 15 kids. We just had our- our producer. Our, our producer, fact checker, help, her, help us with that. 15 kids. We could wow. have a whole show on that. Wow. All right. So we've talked about blueprinting. We talked about a lot. But there, there are really three key steps to this idea of the blueprint. It starts with recognition of the three things we have control over and then building margins of safety in for the things we don't have control over. Yeah. Right? The next part is about applying some very basic rules to how you and your family are going to use this money to support the things that are meaningful to the family. And then the last part of this, which is really where we'll kind of wrap this up for this episode, is is this is where we now start to begin modeling what we call the barrels of money. And what I mean by that is, is we think about how we allocate our money in terms of time frames throughout our life. So if I've amassed, let's call it a million dollars for retirement, right? do I need all million dollars today? Well, 
But okay. I probably don't need the whole thing today. Okay, good. All right. So we need to spread this money out to represent different time periods of our lifetime. We need to allocate portions of this savings that we've created to reflect different times and needs over our lifetime. Now, this is where the financial planning process can get a little bit more complicated. I would not suggest anybody do this without the assistance of a financial planner. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, yeah, this is where a concept that we talk a lot about with clients and a little bit in the book about blind spots. Right. Yeah, sure. Can you invest your own money? Absolutely. Can you make all those kinds of decisions on your own? Absolutely. I feel as though when you're looking at how to allocate different dollars for different parts of retirement, right? right? Like you, you wrote a wonderful. Now. You wrote a wonderful white paper. Sure. On the three phases of retirement, we'll do a podcast on that one day. And you have the go-go years, the slow-go years, and the no-go years. And your money's going to be needed differently in those three phases. You need those. You need money to be doing different things for you, and you don't necessarily need the money for the slow-go phase until hopefully many years from now, right? When so that you're can bake slow going. That right. That can bake in the oven for a long time. There's a philosophy around how that money should be invested and managed and whatever fancy yeah. words we want to use Yeah, I versus mean, the money that you're going to need in the next one to two years. Yeah. I mean, the, the bottom line to this is this is the conversation we start to have about, well, how much money should I have in cash, right? How much money should I have safe sitting in cash? How much money should I put in stocks, or in investments that get me stock-like returns, like mutual funds or these things called ETFs? Should I use life insurance? Should I buy an annuity? What are rental, these Rental properties. Right. Do I buy rental property? There, there are all these different types of things that I can stick my money in, all these different types of assets or different barrels, as we like to call it. And because there are so many blind spots and so many moving parts of these, this is where we suggest that you work with a pro. And those different barrels have different objectives. And different timelines to go with it. Different amounts of risk. I would be much more comfortable taking some risk with money that I know is going to be hopefully not needed for 20 or 30 years than I am the money I need. I had a client the other day, had 30 grand in their money market account with us, and she needs it for her mom's care. Her mom is 97 years old. So did you buy her some Amazon stock with that? She had, Exactly. <laughs> exactly, on margin. She asked me if we could do something better than the one point whatever it is money mark that she's getting right now. And with all seriousness, she was looking for stock individual stock recommendations. Oh, boy. I said, no way, can do. It's not no, the money's job. No can do. It's not that money's job. Not exactly. There's a lot more we could go into on the barrels, but I think we've got a wrap for today, as you like to say. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the key takeaway when you're sitting down thinking about how I'm going to build this blueprint, how I'm going to allocate my assets, the best way to do it is to get some advice on somebody who knows what they're doing. Go get some help. Where do they go to do that? That's a great question. So the CFP board, Certified Financial Planning Board, CFP.org. I knew you'd have an answer. I was just kind of testing you. You can actually go and plug in uh, your, you can kind of do a find an advisor and you want to go on their website and look at their experience and their history. And the longer you listen to our podcast, you'll get a sense that we don't take the usual approach, you know, the my grandfather's Oldsmobile approach to all this. And so start to kick it around and, well, and look at what different advisors in your community offer in the way of financial planning. And I'm also going to suggest this, pay for it. Pay for the financial planning, whether it be on an hourly basis, on a flat fee, 
you want a product, you want an experience that the advisor should be comfortable charging for because it's worth something. Well, Nothing upsets me more and gets me hotter than the quid pro quo on we'll do financial planning for you, assuming you do the, the rest of the transactions, the rest of the commodities. I don't mean pork bellies. I mean, you know, the, the other investments. investments with that firm. That, to me, run and go in the other direction. You want to pay for the financial planning. It should be an experience and a process that can stand on its own. Yes. And there I've... I've well, like you've always said to me, if you think it's expensive to hire a pro, wait till you see how much it costs to work with an amateur. That's a wrap for this episode of Your Financial Sobriety. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com. Thanks again for listening today, here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety. I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance.